difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, and Tasha Robinson. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're off to a pair of lands transformed by enigmatic forces from outer space. Tasha, after you slowly emerge from an underground tunnel filled with terrifying noises, could you tell us about this week's pairing? Sure, I could. But alternately, I could spend a long time building up to revealing this week's pairing and then ultimately choose to walk away from it. Uh, The problem is I don't think that would do a lot for our listeners. So sometimes on this podcast, we make pairings based somewhat loosely on two films' themes or moods or general subject matter. At other times, we look at a new film and find an older one without which it's impossible to imagine the new one existing. Lately, we've had good luck at finding direct points of comparison with our episodes pairing Phantom Thread with Rebecca and The Shape of Water with The Creature from the Black Lagoon. This week finds us looking at two similarly closely related films. Alex Garland's Annihilation is a loose adaptation of Jeff Vandermeer's 2014 novel, the first in a trilogy. But the film's premise, themes, and style give it just as strong a connection to Stalker, Andrew Tartofsky's philosophical science fiction film released in Russia in 1979 before rolling out to the rest of the world in the early 1980s. Both feature characters braving danger as they head into territory claimed by an alien force. Both find those characters exploring landscapes that have at least one foot in the world of dreams and metaphor, and both ultimately reveal that their journeys have become quests for nothing less than meaning itself. But they also seem at times like mirror versions of one another. Tarkovsky's deliberate pace and opaqueness actively work against the traditional expectations of a narrative movie, but Stalker still contains enough recognizable genre elements to be unmistakably a science fiction film, and one with ties to other thoughtful science fiction films of the 1970s. If you squint, Garland's movie looks like a sci-fi blockbuster. It's got gun-packing movie stars headed into a strange land filled with mysteries and dangerous beasts. But folded into it is a story that's extremely stalker-like in its concerns, especially when the journey starts to break down its heroine's preconceptions of identity and explore what separates us from the world around us. So let's slip past the barriers of the known world and into stalker's The Zone before embarking on a second voyage into Annihilation's The Shimmer. Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker never lets viewers find their footing. After a short scene in a bar that reveals itself as a key location, it opens with some explanatory text that seems straightforward enough, setting up a world in which a small country has become the home of a, quote, miracle after the arrival of alien visitors or possibly a meteorite. No one's sure. That miracle is the zone, a place where, the text continues, those who enter never return, prompting the government to surround it and prevent others from entering. This will soon be revealed as a quote from a Nobel Prize winning professor that concludes, we did right, although I'm not sure. And it's soon revealed that the unseen professor has ample reason not to be sure. We then meet the stalker, a man who, contrary to the preceding quote, has made a living taking others into and out of the zone. And despite the protestations of his wife, plans to continue doing so by escorting a writer and a scientist through the security cordon and into the zone in search of the room, a spot said to fulfill the deepest desires of those who reach it. And that's pretty much the plot of Stalker. I could probably even walk us up to the end of the movie in a few more sentences. But in movies, it matters less what happens than how it happens. And that's especially true here. The film's not without action. There's a daring dash to the border and a fight of sorts at what could be called the climax. But from the long opening shot of the Stalker and his family sleeping in a bed as a train passes by to the apparently miraculous events in the final scene, Tarkovsky demands we pay attention and slow ourselves to the rhythms of the film. Whether that means contemplating the back of his characters' heads as they travel by rail car into the zone, or pausing for philosophical monologues about music or writing or the nature of happiness, the latter most delivered by Stalker's wife in a direct address to the camera. 
And from the start, it's clear that Stalker is concerned with the biggest issues that science fiction setup can contain. Their journey becomes a kind of stand-in for all journeys, a search for meaning through a terrain that changes with those who travel through it. It's fitting, then, that the shape of the film itself changed dramatically as Tarkovsky reconceptualized it over the course of a shoot that saw him going through two locations after an earthquake took out one of them, and three cinematographers, and ultimately shooting much of the film twice. And he did it all under the hazardous conditions that made the beautiful, desolate landscape of the film a kind of torture for those who created it, and which may have contributed to the early demise of Tarkovsky, his wife, and others. That's all outside the scope of the film, but it doesn't seem irrelevant when discussing a movie determined to remind us that every moment we experience is freighted with matters of life and death, and that making ourselves aware of it is a duty we dare not neglect. All right, everyone. Traditional opening, and I think this may actually take up the rest of the podcast. (laughs) What did you think of Stalker? I am mildly obsessed with Janet Maslin's review of it from 1982. (laughs) I mean, I know, like, you don't necessarily expect uh, everyone to to get it right all the time, but there's a line in this thing. I think I'm going to know what that line is, but I'm actually looking it up myself because I think I I I know what you're to quote, but go for it. The fact that film is a visual medium Mm -hmm. cannot entirely be ignored. (laughs) Stalker offers the eye so little that it might well have made a better novel or short story than a nearly three hour long film. That's the one. <laughs> and it's like, what film are you watching? This this movie, I I feel like the first time I watched it, I didn't come to grips with the, the philosophical conundrums or, or the journey or the emotional content at all because I was just so blown away by the visuals. There are some some shots in this. I'm thinking of the, the camera shot down the well when the stalker throws something in and sort of makes a series of wishes that might as well be prayers. And you're just watching the water churn and then like slowly find equilibrium again. People complain that this movie is slow, and it is. People complain that there's not a lot to to grasp in terms of the point, and in a way it is until you watch it again and sort of feel that out. But it's it's so visually absorbing, and to me, the characters come across just through the environment, through the first the seerness of it and then the lushness of it. Every shot of this thing is so beautiful. And I was just mesmerized the first time I watched it. And then the second time I watched it, it's like all of these ideas start coming across. I didn't have that much trouble telling the difference between these tall, gaunt, bald men because they're so representative of different ideas. I'm so taken with this movie. Yeah, it's one of those things. I mean, this is sort of the virtue of, you know, I guess slow slow cinema is the term, right, Scott? When you're doing so little everything counts. Everything counts so much more. You know, every every gesture is, is has so much more significance to it. It's like when this film goes from monochrome to color, it's it's as shocking as an explosion. And it's it's such a you know wonderful moment. And and the, the way these things are, are drawn out, it is kind of like Sideshow Bob with the rake where it's like, you know, I'm fascinated by this. I'm a little bored by it. But wait, the longer I look at it, the more grip it has on me. It, it's, uh, yeah, this is, I had, never, I had not seen this movie before. Oh, really? I, mean, yeah, I meant to see it for years, but it just didn't quite get there. And then, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was great to catch up with it. I, see, I thought I would be the, the only newbie in nope. this group that, <laughs> it, that that makes you feel better and also makes me even more impressed that you are leading this discussion, <laughs> Keith, <laughs> because I was intimidated by this movie. I'm intimidated by Tarkovsky. I'm intimidated by Russian cinema. <laughs> like I'm still all of those things <laughs> after watching it. But I had a very kind of small frame of reference for this movie that had to do mainly with its slowness or its deliberateness and its meditative nature and honestly for the first half hour or so of the movie outside of you know the that slow opening sequence in the bed that that you mentioned Keith like I was not seeing it because the you know them breaking into the zone is pretty action-packed at mm-hmm. least by comparison to what follows so I was like oh well, this isn't so bad I can do this for another two hours mm-hmm. but then that sequence which to me just feels like such a key sequence in the film of them on the rail car and just the the sound of the track that very rhythmic kind of lulling soundtrack that you know gets these little mechanical synthetic pings coming in there and you just like are studying the shape of these men's heads for minutes on end and it it really does kind of put you 
into a little bit of a trance mm-hmm. that I think really serves to get you into the zone, as it were, for, for the rest of the film. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about Tarkovsky and just maybe slow cinema in general is that it, it kind of... Uh, changes your metabolism uh, mm. to maybe maybe that's an annihilation esque idea, but it teaches you in a way how to watch it, or it, and uh, and you kind of get with the flow once you kind of understand the whole rhythm of the thing. And to me, the movie still is just more of a vibe. I mean, you know, there, there are a lot of philosophical ideas at play. And we'll get into them and certain things are, are resident. Some, some things are quite obscure to me still, but I, I think it, it's most exciting just as a piece of cinema with which to kind of vibe with it has to do with the photography it has to, it really has to do with the sound just being immersed in this place that is on earth but unreal uh, and to have images that you know it's not like i mean you do have images in the film in settings that are very unusual and alien in, in nature but there are other scenes that are just the earth <laughs> and for tarkovsky to imbue those scenes with such an eerie quality and such an unsettling quality that takes a lot of cinematic brio and uh and i I just find the film to be mesmeric primarily and that's kind of central to its appeal to me it does have a very dreamlike quality to it it's easy to to get a little dozy with it which seems like a good thing because it's trying for a form of a very fixed surrealism like most films when you say surreal this is not the kind of thing that you think of it's almost surreal conceptually more than it's surreal in its execution you know because there's the whole thing about the the land here is recreated around us from moment to moment Mm -hmm. it is what we are it reflects us but we don't see things swimming or like melting you know there's not there's not a lot of special effects going on here it's always just like being told that you're in a different zone uh everything takes on a strange cast i mean you know there's not that much set dressing in in most of the scenes at least but it it is is strange just by the way it's shot and the way and, and the characters react to everything although a little bit also in the setting just in the sense that i mean if you if you take a step back and you don't really look at the details of the visuals you just kind of you know if you look at i don't know somebody's summary of the film it's like yeah they're tromping through the sewer a lot there's so many weird details in that mm. place. I mean, they, they shot it in a, in a couple of abandoned factories. And there's that point where they're they're fighting over the bomb. And they're just all of these like flasks and bottles like floating around in the muck. And they're fighting on this sort of island that you can't really tell what it's made of. It almost looks like a lava flow in the middle of this flooded room. I One of the things that makes it so surreal for me is just the sort of constant question of, what even are we looking at? Mm-hmm. Like, is this a found set or how to what degree did, did they create these weird little islands, these weird little flows, those hillocks of sand? Dunes, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah I, that, that's true. I, I don't I mean, that, that felt like it was meticulously created, but there are other elements that aren't. And I wonder how much the landscape because, I, you know, would be resonant to you know a Russian viewer at the time as being representative of a certain amount of institutional decay, right? I mean, you have all mm-hmm. these tanks and uh, structures that are rotted or, or, or full of growth and stalactites. The whole landscape of the film just feels so so much like deterioration and death. And of course, one of the things that people tend to point out about, about the film is that it seems remarkable that it was uh, that it's a pre-Chernobyl mm-hmm. movie, you know, especially once they get out, you get the shot of the nuclear stacks and just the sense of the earth itself being a poisonous, toxic, radiant, unlivable environment. It, it feels like a very nuclear film, right? I wouldn't think of this film unless it was referenced in the, on Stalker's Wikipedia page, but there was that film a couple of years ago, The Chernobyl Diaries, which I didn't see. Okay. It was a found footage horror film about I, I did see that. someone who takes, that. Takes, takes people into the Chernobyl zone, basically. Oh, that's right. And, and yeah. finds all kinds of horrific monsters. So it sounds like the found footage horror movie of Stalker. It also sounds like Monsters, the movie. Mm. Yeah, I think I reviewed Chernobyl Diaries and didn't reference Stalker. That's a big failure. Yeah, well. (laughs) Go back and slip it in. It's the internet. We're here to remind you of your failure, Scott. That is true. (laughs) Yeah, that actually brings me to the question I want to raise. is What specifically, and I don't think any of us here are, are experts on Soviet history or the Cold War, but what feels specifically Soviet era to you about this film and what is universal? On the, the first front, I mean, you know, you have the, sort of these 
strange but recognizably totalitarian uniforms of the people trying to keep them out and just the whole idea of escaping over the border to a land that is different feels very much sort of a, a Cold War thing. Uh, not uniquely a Cold War idea, but I think it's depicted with those in those terms a little bit here. There's also just those rusted out tanks, as, mm-hmm. as Scott kind of referenced. There's a feeling not just of institutional decay, but of of history, um, of, of eras. I mean, one of the things we just don't really deal with much in America, apart from battlefields like Gettysburg being preserved to some s- small degree as tourist attractions, is the idea of the country having like layers upon layers of history based around war happening there. And the idea of these old tanks just sitting around slowly falling to ruin, these old factories that have been abandoned and left to just run riot with with grasses, just kind of gives you a sense of entire institutions that have risen and fallen, entire invading forces or resisting forces, entire regimes that have risen and fallen. But on top of that, there's just a a degree to which the the entire sense of there is an unknown place out there where you can have everything you desire. So, of course, the government doesn't want us to have it. We think that some outside force has given it to us so that we can be happy. So, of course, <laughs> the government's idea is that we have to have be shut off from it. Like there is such a combination of leaden despair and philosophical resignation to so much classic Russian art, particularly Russian novels and Russian cinema. And this whole idea of, well, you know, our our happiness is right there, but it takes an alien to bring it to us and the government won't let us have it. Just so Russian to me. Well, I'm going to be the good Russian here and, <laughs> and counter you because, it, because the other, the competing idea that comes up in the film is, well, there are a couple of things. One is that someone making their wishes come true you don't you, you have no control over what those wishes are and what kind of impact they might have on everyone else oh, sure. hence the bomb and so there's a reason to defend that and then there's the other idea which is that maybe when you go into the room it is not a conscious wish that is being granted at all but something that you can't really control and what are the ramifications of that and that sense it's it's a dangerous place and, a, and it's in a, it would surely contribute to uh, the fact that these guys don't actually go into the room, right? I agree with you, but I honestly think it's it's just another iteration of that same philosophical resignation. There's that idea of happiness is not a thing for us. Like happiness is not something we can be given because it will probably destroy us. Well, let me give you one, another another thing too, because I think the film that you know it is obviously important that the film ends with the stalker's wife talking directly into the camera. If, if, if So if you really want to underline what is the point of stalker, that's what you want to key in on. And she's talking about happiness. And she's talking about this marriage that she's entered into, um, you know, against her parents' wishes, against, you know, against, I think, beyond the comprehension of friends, perhaps, that she knows that she's going to accept a, a certain amount of, of heartbreak and uh, disappointment and struggle uh, but there's there's going to be some kind of a bittersweet happiness, uh, you know, and devotion there anyway, and then she's willing to accept the reality of that, and the reality of that is something that exists entirely apart from and, and not in, in in need of a place like the zone in the I th- room. I think it's also there's sort of a male female divide there, where happiness and and satisfaction are something that that men look for by going off and leaving home and searching for something and stalking through the wilderness and questing and and her definition is is sort of a more kind of a resigned fatalism and that's what happiness is it's it's the it's the feelings you have measured against the unhappiness that you feel too that there's it's not the idea of of an absolute source of happiness that's going to grant all your wishes is is not something although I guess she does at one point does think about going into the zone but it's not sort of something that comes to her naturally it's, it's so interesting that ending reminded me of, of not to get too sidetracked it reminded me of ulysses where you know you have this whole novel from these two men's points of view and they you know they're, they're walking around dublin and philosophizing and, and and so on and they get a whole last chapter totally different change of perspective from the woman's point of view and that, that's kind of what seems to be going on here as well Keith, did you study the book uh, Ulysses? Yeah, a little bit. Um, <laughs> in some sort of a formal setting? Perhaps. Um, Speaking of novels that we've studied in a formal setting, I mean, to me, the whole idea of, of the wife and her speech, to me, just feels very Tolstoy. The whole idea of like happiness is not something that you can be given. It's something that you earn through hard work and a certain amount of compromise. Mm. Just feels like something that came, comes up in like Tolstoy over and over. 
Is there a specific Tolstoy that you would say that came up with? Perhaps the death of Ivan Ilyich? <laughs> I don't remember that one so well. Um, the- I, I ask because that, along with Dostoevsky's The Idiot, comes up in Tarkovsky's like first diary entry that like mentions this film in 1974. And in that diary entry, he also writes, quote, At the moment, I can see a film version of something by the Strigotsky brothers as being totally harmonious in form, unbroken, detailed action, but balanced by a religious action, entirely on the plane of ideas, almost transcendental, absurd, and absolute. And I bring that up because I feel like we're really dancing around the fact that this, at least to me, comes across as a deeply religious movie. Mm. We keep mm. couching it in philosophical terms, but it, Tarkovsky was a deeply religious man, and I found many quotes from him saying that, like, you know, it's a very important element of his films. And soccer is not working at the level of allegory. I don't think it, in the Soviet Union in that era it could be a direct religious allegory, which speaks to your question, Keith, about how it reflects the era. But, like, in the the themes and questions and meditations that this film is dealing with, so much of it just seems explicitly religious. And there's so much Christian imagery. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the blood and fish in the water. The, the rider wearing the crown, the, crown, of, thorns the crown of thorns, point, yeah. you know, um, the water, the baptismal waters, you know, like it's, I feel like I need to watch this film like with a, a Christian scholar or something mm. just to like map it more directly. But I also kind of suspect it doesn't map that directly as, like I said, as an allegory. Well, it also just, I mean, it seems to come down to the fact that the writer is our most verbal character and he's the one that starts off the movie by saying there is no supernatural, there is no spiritual in the world, the world is boring and nothing interesting ever happens here. And then he's proved wrong both by the zone and by his own reactions to it. And ultimately he seems to come out thinking, you know, the world is a more spiritual place than I thought it was. And as a result, he has to completely abandon the quest that he thought he started out on because it's based on a philosophically flawed argument. Yeah, and perhaps not one that he's, it seems almost more posturing than than his actual feelings, which are a lot more complicated and tortured, as, as we learn over the course of the film. As to themes that are universal, one thing that touches me is just the very end with a child uh, reading poetry and just sort of casually playing with her powers, which seem to come to her as a result of her her father's time in the zone. There's a sense of hope there. I think that isn't necessarily present in the rest of the mm. movie. Her father goes on and on about hope and how the the point of the zone is to give mankind hope. But in the end, the movie seems to suggest, I think, that the hope is with the children. Hope is with the future. Hope is the next generation will be better equipped to deal with this sort of thing than we are. She's the only character who gets a name. And she Monkey. is... Monkey. Monkey. <laughs> uh, uh, and she is the only one who... We see in color in sort of the monochrome non-zone world. And I kind of read that as sort of whatever separated the that's transcendent and hard to reach about the zone from the monochrome world of, of the real world. Maybe this is a generation that, that's going to break down that barrier. And then maybe the manifestations of, of her powers uh, at the end is kind of a, a symbolic of that. I also thought at one point this may be the world's slowest uh, X-Men origin story. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, yeah. Really, just line this up right next to Logan. And I think if you want to like, if you want to tie all those things together and talk about children and religion and hope, etc., then Andre Rublev maybe his most famous film, perhaps. Well, this and this and Solaris and Andre Rublev has the whole thing with the church bell, or the big bell, and everything. That, that that's the, that takes up a huge chunk of the film in the end, and that's that has a big you know transcendental quality. So it was kind of these things are present uh, as you describe them. I just read that last scene with the child as just confirmation of the miraculous nature of the zone because, I, I mean, I could be missing it or just being stupid, but like I, I didn't like really see any actual moments of like supernatural in the zone. It's we're, it's all like a feeling. It's all what the stalker is telling us will, will happen. There's like kind of a little bit of it when the writer hears someone telling him to, to turn back, mm-hmm. but that's kind of ambiguous like the there is the professor getting a phone call in the middle of the zone apparently from someone he knows yeah it's not the clinic yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i mean there's there's a lot that's like eerie and unnatural about the zone there's I, I don't think we see anything that confirms the stalker's faith that this is a a miraculous place 
And so I think that final scene is the confirmation of that miracle that he sees in this place that he struggles to impart onto the writer and scientist to and, and fails ultimately. There is also the uh, it is just the refutation of our, our introduction to the writer. I, I mean, somebody that that dog is is surely like has been produced by the zone for one of them. I don't know who wished for a, a very nice dog. But well, the writer already has five. So probably not. <laughs> probably not. Uh, it is a very nice dog, though. I know. Yeah, he definitely, dog. definitely deserves. Well, they're all good dogs, Scott. <laughs> they're all very good dogs. Definitely, definitely needed some ear scratches. Now that dog was just really cute. So these characters don't have names. Uh, do they feel more like types than fully fleshed out characters to you? Every time I revisit this movie, I want to see them. I, I, I always get like a Chaucer feel of like, okay, so so we have three individuals who are named by their professions and they're going to represent different aspects of the world. and They're going to represent those professions. And then they just immediately get muddied for me mm. because, I mean, not to, to tip our annihilation hat too much, but it, it kind of feels like they merge into each other a little bit. Mm. Like they, they start crossing over and, and changing who they are you could argue that they're kind of getting whittled down uh, by the journey to to more essential versions of themselves but i just don't see them as being all that representative of like i've seen analysis of stalker that really wants to break it down to the professor is representative of science and uh, the writer is representative of art and the stalker is representative of spirituality but i just i don't see it playing out that specifically with them i think they they all manifest different kinds of struggles with faith and, and struggles with belief and struggles with their own inner demons. Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, there's not going to be a huge amount of distance between a writer and a professor anyway, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and there's a certain, you know, the two of them seem so much more alike than they do to the stalker himself. I mean, there's an arrogance that they bring to the table, a defiance of his orders or his, his expertise. They're going to do things their own way. They're going to, he's going to go, the professor is going to go back to get his, his rucksack for, I guess we find out later, a, a very important reason. And the writer's not going to ignore the nut throwing and, uh, and just <laughs> and move and move forward on a direct path to the room. So um, in that sense, they seem very uh, much alike. I have a hard time remembering who has what monologue and who has like what point of view because they all kind of seem to be from the same authorial perspective in some ways. Yeah, there are definitely scenes where one of them becomes more more distinctive of a character than others. I mean, for me, one of the most Stalker's most important scenes is at the beginning when he breaks away from him and almost goes and rolls in the grass. I mean, he, he lies down in the grass and just sort of embraces it and you, you kind of see a weight fall off of him. So he prostrates himself in front of the zone? Mm. <laughs> I don't, uh, to me, no, it's not like that. It's, yeah. it's almost like watching a, a dog rolling in the grass like he rolls mm-hmm. over on his back and Feels just more reverential to me but yeah, to me it's uh it, it really is just like a, it's like a physical sensation like mm-hmm. he's he's getting back in touch with life with yeah. like actual the fecundity of the world and then that scene when the writer keeps throwing him off the professor when he's trying to get the bomb and he he breaks down weeping and tries to explain why it's important to him what that he does what he does he just he seems like a stronger and more specific character to me than the other two just to like go back to that final scene one more time in talking about types, am I way out on a limb here in seeing those three glasses as representing the three men? And there's one holding a brown liquor, one holding what looks like specimens of some sort, and then a, the one that actually gets pushed off the table is an, an empty vessel. Wow, Genevieve. That's good. I, That's not, really cool. Nope. <laughs> All right. Good not, job, me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave before I ruin this. So. That did not occur to us, dude, as, the, as, the, as we would say. In she just Bobby. dropped the mic. Uh, wow, I did not think about that. I guess I wanted to make one more point about this film and Tarkovsky and just the way it plays. I have... have, have it, all of you have you seen Solaris? Who's seen Solaris? Here? I've seen Solaris. I've seen the fifty percent of Solaris. I didn't fall asleep through. <laughs> oh, give another shot. It's really good. Yeah, it's I, I given how much I love this movie, I absolutely should, should revisit it. I I saw it many 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 years ago when I was during a period where I was working weird hours for the Onion and not getting enough sleep, and it was very common for me to sleep through movies. So yes, I really need to go back. Yeah, but I guess my just narrow point is that I think they're companion films. That he has an approach to science fiction, which is about you know allowing a lot of strange things to happen and putting characters in, in strange, unsettling situations. But but the primary 
purpose is to create sort of a psychic or a philosophical space from which to kind of you know, meditate and, in his words, sort of sculpt time and do Tarkovsky things. Uh, and so that, so to me, though, the two films, Solaris and Stalker, are, are companions in that respect in that they take you to this space, this meditative space, and allow you to consider a lot of really heavy ideas that he's throwing out there. Um, so it's really all about, in both cases, just setting up this scenario i mean they both have, they both have pretty strong premises but don't necessarily have a whole lot of story or uh, happening beyond that premise you're just really kind of put in a situation and he he's all about creating an atmosphere and a vibe and a and a feeling from which you can kind of think about larger ideas george clooney is really good in solaris <laughs> yes <laughs> Yes, underrated. Underrated. Yeah, it actually, uh, I, I do like the remake of Solaris. That, that was funny. The, the Solaris. The, I did like the remake of Solaris, which got, a, of course, an F cinema score. But I want to see the cinema score on Stalker, just because. <laughs> can you imagine an audience being led this far into the movie? They get all the way up to the antechamber within the antechamber, ready to go into the room, and don't they don't go in? I mean, that is that takes some. Uh, Chutzpah. Chutzpah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a common way of describing it. takes some nut throwing. It does. It <laughs> does take some nut throwing. Jeff Dyer, who has the, a little short documentary about this on the, the Criterion Blu-ray, points out you do actually see the room just from the inside. There's the one amazing shot of our three travelers after they decide not to go into the room is from the point of view of the room. Mm. So make of that what you will. Speaking of symbolism, uh, I mean, is the room heaven, essentially? I mean, is the reason that they can't enter into it because they they haven't died yet? It's sort of presented as the paradise where you get whatever you want. And the one example we know of somebody who who went in, he got everything he wanted and then he rejected it. But he also, uh, you know, he, (laughs) I don't know, I'm I'm thinking of very biblical figures who... uh, you know, who overstepped, who trespassed and who were punished for it, mm. um, like Lot's wife looking back. But in this case, it just it seems to me that they're questing after this spiritual truth. And when they kind of turn their backs on it and walk back they're they're walking back to the world. To me, it feels like they're rejecting death and deciding to continue their ordinary lives, at least for a little while longer. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it's very notable that the stalker doesn't enter the room himself and, and doesn't want to and, and is very focused on the altruistic aim of his mission, you know, and yeah, again, like without going into like one to one, you know, symbolism or allegory, like I think the room equals death on some level, you know, like what it offers cannot be attained by someone who is living but it's also possible it just it can't be obtained by somebody who hasn't achieved a certain purity there's just there's a very dante's inferno to the whole story to me of you know they have this guide who's like leading them through stage after stage after stage on this quest and they kind of have to come come out through the other side I mean, you know, I don't know if this is part of uh, his process or not, but there's also kind of a Dallas thing where it's, you know, this truth that you can realize is not the real truth. Like the actual, the real truth of things remains unknowable in this world and unattainable. And that's, you know, recognizing that as kind of wisdom. Well, another very important part of Buddhist wisdom is you achieve happiness by giving up on desire. Mm. I guess before we, we shut out, you you mentioned the importance of the bar in your keynote and kind of how that comes around to being a, a significant setting. The bar always surprises me when I rewatch this film because it doesn't look real to me. It it looks like it looks so much like early experiments in like all CGI sets where they filmed mm. people on, on blue screen and then just replaced everything. It's completely flat. It's completely monochrome. And to me, it just, it looks like they're walking through a painting. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned a painting because I honestly did not even clock that the opening scene before the prologue was like of the bar that we were looking at the bar in that moment. And part of that <laughs> is due to some technical difficulties I had uh, while trying to Chromecast this film to my television where it made everything 
bright green oh, wow. so, so for I, I watched the first like 10 minutes of this film thinking that it was like committed to like a very strong green and black <laughs> color scheme <laughs> before realizing what was happening but in watching it that way that opening like i was like this is am i just looking at, a, at an expressionist painting like this like very heavy black and color it looked abstract to me like I, I didn't clock that i was looking at something that flatness you mentioned is part of that obviously part of it is <laughs> new to my technical difficulties but then when i rewatched it with the correct color and on a better screen uh it still maintained that quality for me that like it didn't occur to me that i was looking at a set in that moment and that carried through to a certain extent to the opening scene in the the bedroom like when you go through those perfectly symmetrical doors and it's so composed and there's so much in that case there's so much texture that is revealed like slowly revealed yeah and i think the i think the color scheme contributes to sort of the unreal quality of it all mm-hmm. as well both the bar and the stalker's house kind of made me think of oh wait i think i think david lynch saw this before constructing <laughs> the red room and, mm-hmm. and they're in the black lodge and all that uh, these sort of like very set like just off reality kind of settings um mm-hmm. yeah and i think I, and I, and just on a technical note i've seen the film a couple of times the first time i saw it was in 35 millimeter about 25 years ago and it was on really the most brittle print i've ever encountered it was not in very good shape and it was one of those prints where the color was washed out and, and almost sort of purplish in spots um which a lot of those 70s prints tended to be because 70s prints were not often on very good stock and so now is the right time to see stalker because stalker has been restored it is on criterion and film struck and other places like that those colors come through so well uh, in the contrast between certain settings of the film but between that and the monochrome of the bar and the opening to the color uh, that you get once you're in the zone all of that really pops in a way that it hasn't in quite some time in life that does not let janet maslin off the hook that is so crazy yeah. what in the world what in the world well, there's lots more to talk about. We haven't even got into the sound design, which we'll probably we'll almost certainly return to when in the next episode where we talk about Annihilation and what it shares with us, including a very interesting sound design. That's a tease for the next episode, and there's more of this episode left, and we'll be right back to get into feedback on some recent episodes. And now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. First, a response to our Creature from the Black Lagoon and the Shape of Water episodes. Scott, would you like to read it? Uh, Sure. Uh, Christopher writes, I just finished listening to this week's episode on the Shape of Water and Creature from the Black Lagoon. Just as a start off, I was happy to hear the positive responses to Creature. I've always found it an intriguing and deeper film than most people give it credit for, for many of the reasons that you discussed. However, my main question has to do with the shape of water, and it is a question that I actually intended to write in about when you covered three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. So please cast your mind back to that film as well. Both of these films, in very different ways, offer commentary on American culture or American identity. What effect, if any, does the fact that these films are made by cultural quote-unquote outsiders have on the films themselves and how they view Americanness? Also, if you decide to discuss this on the show, feel free to expand out to other films as well that maybe do not consider American culture but are made by cultural outsiders. For example, Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility or Brokeback Mountain or Whit Stillman's Love and Friendship. I generally find that these films offer a richer or at least interestingly different view of the culture they examine exactly because they are an outsider to that culture. However, I can also see potential problems with this in the form of, usually unintended, misrepresentations or misunderstandings that can mar a film's aims. Well, to start with, didn't we do a piece on this back at the AV Club about perspectives on America by non-Americans? I feel like it was maybe you and Noel. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always an obsession of mine. I find it fascinating whenever, particularly when foreign filmmakers or European filmmakers come to America and present what is what their view of the country is, because it's always uh, a little bit off. <laughs> but it's also a little bit on in ways that we as uh, people who live here maybe take for granted or, 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 or something like that. Or don't, don't, we don't, because we live here, we don't see things clearly or we don't see things from, a, from that kind of a perspective. So, it's, so I find it always fascinating when, when the kind of cultures come together in that way. 
Yeah, I mean, can can we tell if it's a little bit off? How do we know it's not just our perspective? I, I think that the question about uh, unintended misrepresentations or misunderstandings is is interesting. But I mean, American filmmakers can misrepresent America and do all the time, either because they're telling a, a story within the bounds of Hollywood, which has all of these tropes that have nothing to do with the way people actually live in America. Case in point, you know, a, a junior, you know, book publishing editor assistant living in a gigantic New York apartment by herself. Mm-hmm. I feel like America is like the elephant that the blind men are trying to describe. It's it's a big place mm. with a lot of very specific regional cultures. And it's certainly possible for like a foreign filmmaker to look at one and not represent the others. But it's just as possible for an American to do that. So I wouldn't worry so much about misrepresentations. I would just take the perspective. The perspective of somebody like Vim Vendors mm-hmm. on specific American subcultures is fascinating. Yeah, but I mean, I think of these examples here, you know, Three Billboards is, I think, certainly a case where of a, of a non-American commenting in a little bit of a, in a way, way that is a little off or offbeat, if you want to be kind about it, or completely wrong-headed, if you want to be another way about it. But I mean, a touch like having a catholic priest show up in a in you know small town missouri and having him get sort of blasted by francis mcdormand's character that that is just an import from mcdonough an irish playwright into this world in which it really doesn't necessarily belong it's also as we kind of talked about at the time it's him bringing his personal obsession into a story where it just really doesn't Mm -hmm. fit but I mean, I don't know, like Guillermo del Toro's perspective on American politics as somebody from a culture that is is currently being so disrespected in America is particularly interesting to me. Like, I feel that his vision of at least the America of the, the 1950s, which is a very symbolic America in Shape of Water, is cartoony, but it's very consciously and deliberately cartoony. And he's using that cartoon to comment on some of the... The, the problems that he sees in present day America. So he may be misrepresenting or simplifying what America is about, but he's doing so very deliberately and from the perspective of like a, a culturally disrespected outsider, as opposed to somebody who's trying to make an accurate and like letter perfect observation about what America is. Yeah. And plus, well, in that case, though, it's rooted in history, it's rooted in movies, it's things that people that don't live in America, and you know, none of us lived at, 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 during America at that time, things that they have access, that somebody like Del Toro has access to and can recreate in this context in a perfectly cromulent way. What about when it goes wrong? I, I, my, my go-to with that is, even when it goes wrong, it's kind of interesting. I'm thinking about My Blueberry Nights, the mm, Wong yeah. Kar Wai film, which is in many ways like any other Wong Kar Wai film, but it's just... It just so doesn't slip into the setting he's where he's setting things. Mm-hmm. If you if you know how things are in the and you know in the American South, well, a big chunk of it's in Memphis, and I don't know, it, it's it's off in a way that makes the film kind of not work, but also kind of makes it interesting. Yep, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Also, in the film Rumble in the Bronx, <laughs> there are mountains behind the Bronx, and that is not accurate. <laughs> yeah, no, that, 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 is, that, is that like the least persuasive uh, 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 New York ever in the movies? Yeah. Pretty yeah. bad. That's hilarious. Where was it shot? Vancouver, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Vancouver, the Bronx, it's all pretty much the same. Yeah, the, the focus serves really on the rumble. So, yeah, know, it worked. I just, I really find it fascinating when people from other countries do the exploratory version of this, which Vim Vendors has. Mm-hmm. And uh, Andrea Arnold's American Honey comes to mind yeah. Yeah. as a movie where somebody from another culture, uh, in this case uh, from Britain, came to America and kind of went, kind of did the looking for America thing of Jack Kerouac, you know, traveling around trying to find something real and specific. And she put it into the film and she's not trying to say this is America. She's showing us what she's observed. And I I think that that kind of outsider perspective can really be powerful. The road movie is like the perfect genre for that too, of just, you know, of being able to be a little loose and, and specific and kind of explore the wide openness of the country. 
We also received some feedback via Twitter when we mentioned that we considered doing an episode on Black Panther, but couldn't find a great pairing for it. So we threw it out to listeners to suggest what we could have paired it with. Genevieve, as the organizer of this poll, want to share some results? Sure. Topping the poll was Blade, presumably because they both feature Black Marvel superheroes. That was followed by suggestions for The Lion King, Shaft, and Coming to America. Other possibilities that we got like one or two mentions of include Space is the Place, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and The Wiz. Um, the Wiz. <laughs> <laughs> someone also uh, suggested Cat People, which I think was probably a joke. But which Cat People? I don't know, but I, th- I assumed it was just... Neither uh, works. Yeah, I assumed it was... <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. You know, we, we also got suggestions for like Black Cougar and like things that were like very clearly just playing on the broad concept of <laughs> of guy who dresses like a large cat. And interestingly, no one suggested the film that we were considering pairing Black Panther with before deciding there just wasn't enough there that we wanted to get into, which is uh, John Huston's The Man Who Would Be King. As suggested by... As suggested by Todd Vanderwerf. Your, your current my, co-worker my, my co-worker, or yeah. all of our former co-workers. Yes, yes. Uh, and I, I told him we were going to do it and then didn't tell him we oh, aren't. Todd. So sorry, Todd. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you don't listen to this anyway, but... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I I don't know. Did we miss an opportunity here, guys? Or, or do any of these suggestions really speak to you? I, I feel like... I mean, what I really wanted was to find some great 60s African Futurist movie that I didn't know about, yeah. and uh, like take that as an opportunity. And there's so little Afrofuturism. There's so much of it in music, and so little of it in cinema. Where you get it is space is the place, which is the Sun Ra movie, which is pretty fascinating. I'm not sure it's a strong enough connection to do a whole episode around. But it does involve Sun Ra descending into Oakland uh, on a spaceship, uh, not unlike the opening of this film, which which I, I think is, I mean, you know, director Ryan Coogler grew up in Oakland, so it's probably that. But I also like to think that it's a little bit of space as a place homage by having uh, sort of these spacecraft uh, descending in, into uh, inner city Oakland. I having not seen the movie, I can't really line up expectations. The one thing on this list that kind of gives me a hmm, interesting uh, moment is Hancock, mm-hmm. which is specifically about a black superhero. It's not as caught up in identity politics as Black Panther is. Like Black Panther is so concerned with the state of of black people around the world and what responsibility the main character and the main villain have to it and there's just there's a lot of like political strife going on there and Hancock doesn't really have that depth I'm not convinced it engages in anything like the same way with its its characters like ethnicity or his background or his connections to the world but it is sort of a, an interesting film I just I feel like Black Panther is so specific in form, being yet another Marvel movie that follows the Marvel pattern, and yet so contemporary in its, like, the themes it's being allowed to express that we don't see in cinema. Mm -hmm. Like, where do we find a match for that? Yeah, I think it's tough for two reasons. One is the historical scarcity of black heroes. I mean, uh, I love Shaft, uh, but beyond having both having been black heroes, you know, it's a tough connection to make. The other is, I, I think... For you know, it is a Marvel movie, but I also feel like this is you know, it is very James Bond like in the middle of it. But I also feel like this is a movie that's kind of doing things I just don't think it's really seen in a superhero movie or, or most like big Hollywood movies before. I mean, the like you say, the Afrofuturism, the concern with uh, political themes, the way it's kind of all kind of gracefully matched together. I really liked Black Panther, and I would love to talk about it on this show, but it was just it was a tough uh, tough one to fit into our format. If we hadn't already done Iron Man as a pairing, I would have yeah, probably sure. suggested that. Yeah, yeah sort of a state sure. of the Marvel hero kind of thing. Yeah. Not, not just that, but also like a Marvel hero who's questioning his responsibilities in the world and questioning, you know, his personal comfort and gain versus, uh, you know, what he owes other people who are suffering because of his his inactivity and basically a challenge to his power from somebody like who technically comes from within his own regime. I think there are a lot of parallels there that we could have picked out if we hadn't already done that movie in vast detail. Comparing it to the movie in which Black Panther first appeared, Captain America Civil War. So we kind of did. I guess we should, uh, I mean, we should sort of specify that kind of the idea of the show is what we, uh, films, the, the the pairing film has to be, we have to go back at least, what, 20 years? Is that what we settled on? Uh, we've, sort of. Not, yeah, we, we, we've definitely, yeah, we, and we did John Carter of Mars, like we occasionally break our own rules. Just uh, John Carter. 
Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Real quick, I, I do want to mention that Kugler has mentioned a couple of reference points that we also considered, specifically James Bond. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually think a couple people suggested a, a couple of Bond movies as well uh, in our Twitter poll. But again, that's just like, I, I definitely see where Kugler is coming from in his movie, but like, I can't think of a lot of you know, direct connections, as we put it, between any Bond film and this. You know, you obviously have a Q figure in in Shuri. Like, that's a very strong connection. But mm-hmm. beyond that, it gets trickier. Yeah, he. We went back. Uh, one of the one of the ways that we often get these pairings is to look at interviews with the contemporaneous filmmaker and see what they say inspired them. And in this case, we went and looked at all those interviews. Mm-hmm. And he didn't cite specific James Bond films. Mm-hmm. Like he was talking he about cited Goldfinger. No, not none, none of the ones that I looked at. He just sort of glossed over the idea of a hero with a lot of gadgets. Let's scrap this episode and go do Goldfinger. I really like Goldfinger. <laughs> Goldfinger. He mentioned he mentioned Goldfinger to uh, to slash film. Um, you gotta do Goldfinger at some point. Right? Yeah, I, just, I saw that there's, one there's recently. There's a new Bond film oh coming God. out eventually. Um, he also um, Kugler frequently mentions a prophet uh the french mm. film a prophet oh, yeah. as, being, as being his favorite film of all time and something that he returns to often when he is making movies so it's a great movie yeah it's a fantastic yeah, movie yeah, it's and there it might have been interesting to kind of chart the rise of the protagonist kind of like fighting his way up through through life with uh, eric killmonger's background and the way he kind of has to fight his way yeah up. i mean if, if, if it were killmonger's story then then it would be a better pairing with uh, a prophet than than it is currently to a lot okay. of people it is killmonger's story but yeah. you'll just have to imagine all those great episodes that could have been because we're, <laughs> we're not doing <laughs> we're any not of doing it we're moving forward <laughs> okay well that wraps up our, our feedback for this episode we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts their recommendations and their philosophical monologues to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net we may feature a response on a future episode or post it on facebook for discussion That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Annihilation and talk about what it borrows from Stalker, what it discards, and the way it forges its own path through mysterious terrain. Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, so you always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be standing outside the room waiting for you. We'll see you next time. Next Picture Show.